We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. Why are you talking like that? I don't that? know. <laughs> I can't stop. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. <laughs> and today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of The Mirror Cracked on December 19, 1980. It was written by Jonathan Hales and Barry Sandler based on the novel the Mirror Cracked from Side to Side by Agatha Christie, directed by Guy Hamilton, and released by Associated Film Distribution. Third film in a row for us. Did they just drop all their shit on I the same guess. day? I guess. They must have had like a time limit, and they dropped three <laughs> movies on December 19th this year. One of these is going to win an Oscar. It better. Oh, well, we got a Golden Globe. Oh, and a Razzie. Shit. <laughs> In December of 1927, two months after the release of the original Jazz Singer, which we discussed in our previous episode, crime novelist Agatha Christie published a short story called The Tuesday Night Club in The Royal Magazine. It would serve as the first official Miss Marple story, and the short was later repurposed as the first chapter of Christie's The Thirteen Problems short story collection. Miss Marple is portrayed as an elderly amateur detective who lives in the fictional English village of St. Mary Mead. In 1962, The Mirror Cracked from Side to Side became the 13th installment in the Miss Marple series. Marple was first portrayed on film by actress Margaret Rutherford, and despite her disappointment in the films, Christie dedicated the publishing of The Mirror Cracked novel to her memory. Rutherford led in four films as Marple, Murder, She Said, Murder at the Gallop, Murder Most Foul, and Murder Ahoy, the middle two of which were originally Hercule Poirot stories, and the last of which is not even based on a specific work of Christie's, though it does borrow elements from They Do It With Mirrors and The Mousetrap. Fun fact, The Mousetrap, a murder mystery play by Christie, opened in London's West End in 1951 and ran continuously until March of this year Aww. when performances were discontinued on account of the COVID-19 pandemic. In its almost 70-year run, it was performed 28,000 times. Wow. Which beats the record by a lot. So it'll be good for a while? Because, like, everything shut down. So yes. I feel like we're resetting They're, all records. On the list right now, <laughs> the top four or five are shut down. And second place started in 85 so it's not even close rutherford also cameoed as marple in 1965's the alphabet murders which is a poirot story the stories of poirot and marple together has been adapted by nhk into a 39 episode anime for japanese television entitled agatha christie's great detectives poirot and maple and apparently they are very faithful adaptations i would love to see this show yeah in composing the story for the mirror cracked Christie borrowed some real-life details from the life of actress Jean Tierney, and we will discuss that further when we reach that part of the film. The first announcement of a film adaptation of The Mirror Cracked came in 77 with two-time Oscar winner Helen Hayes as Marple, 
Though she didn't wind up in the final film, she would go on to portray Marple in a pair of TV movies in 83 and 85. Two films were announced simultaneously, A Caribbean Mystery and The Mirror Cracked, but only the latter made it into theaters. The former became Helen Hayes' first TV movie portrayal of the character. Producers John Braborn and Richard Goodwin had acquired the rights for Mirror after their adaptations of Murder on the Orient Express and Death on the Nile in 74 and 79 respectively. By 1979, it was announced that Angela Lansbury would take over the role as soon as she finished her stage run of Sweeney Todd. Insanely, producer Braborn suffered leg injuries in a bomb blast that killed his mother, son, and father-in-law, Lord Mountbatten. Mountbatten was targeted by the IRA, and when an earlier sniping attempt had failed, they settled for blowing up his boat with his entire family on board. Jesus. Wait, was he, is he associated with the, the royals at all? Like, He's a lord. Isn't that the last name of... Mountbatten? Yeah. Queen Elizabeth's husband? Philip Mountbatten. All right. Well, there you go. I, I mean, I don't know if he's... I'm sorry. What is this guy's name and title? Uh, the producer's name is uh, Braborn, but his father-in-law, it just said Lord Mountbatten in the article that I was reading. I'm looking on here. Yes. Died in 79. So it is Lewis Mountbatten. Okay. Lewis would be uh, Philip's uncle. In spite of this tragedy, Braborn decided to move forward with the project. Guy Hamilton was reportedly given the job on account of his distaste for Agatha Christie novels. Hamilton said of Rutherford's earlier portrayal of Marple that she was a divine clown, but she was no more Miss Marple than Fly to the Moon. We are doing Miss Christie's Miss Marple, a more serious person, a gossip, a bit of a snob, and she doesn't fall off of her bicycle into the village duck pond, which is how the character was previously portrayed. Although she will be tripped by a dog. That's true. Not far off of the duck pond. Lansbury said that she played the part of Marple absolutely straight. I'm trying to get at the woman Agatha Christie created, an Edwardian maiden lady imbued with great humanity and a mind of tremendous breadth. She's very exactly described in the books as tall, pale-complexioned, with twinkling blue eyes and white hair, not a fat galump of a creature at all. I base my performance on that. Also on the fact that she has tremendous alertness and curiosity allied to a great appetite for murder. I feel like it's weird to refer to the woman who played the part earlier as a fat galump in your... <laughs> describing well, how you're going to play the character well I, I suppose she's more attacking the people who cast i guess the but role, still but it's just like that lady was probably still alive when you yeah. were playing this part and saying this about her lansbury initially signed a three-picture deal but never returned to the character beside portraying the very similar jessica fletcher for 12 seasons of cbs's murder she wrote yeah which is clearly it's, it has to be based on this character no right? not at all but she was in a movie called Murder, She Said that was written by Agatha Christie. It was Agatha Murder, Christie. She Said. And it, Murder, She Wrote was only a couple years after this. Yeah. And this this whole thing feels like a Murder, She Wrote episode. It absolutely does, yeah. which is totally fine with me. <laughs> yeah. It was a great show. It ran for 12 seasons. I liked it. <laughs> it reminded me. Uh, one of my first Minecraft servers that Pat was on uh, while we were dividing it up, I made my first little town area and I called it Cabot Cove. <laughs> <after> <laughs> and I did not get it. The reference was lost on me. 
A second film to be titled Appointment with Murder, adapted from Christie's A Murder is Announced, was briefly in development to star Lansbury but never came to fruition. Though I'd argue there's still time. She's doing great. She still looks like the character. Go yeah. get her. Yeah. She probably looks right? like the character more now. Yeah. Natalie Wood was initially cast in the Marina Gregg role, but negotiations broke down over cast billing and the character's portrayal. I think that's honestly a trade up. I mean, I like Natalie Wood, mm-hmm. but Elizabeth Taylor is a much bigger character. Yeah. And she lends all of her gravitas to the role. Mm-hmm. And plus the character is supposed to be, or unless she was rewritten to be, more of an older woman who's fallen out of her career yeah sound i mean it seems like that is what the story was though yeah but they could have changed it after she left the title comes from the lady of shallot by english poet alfred lord tennyson out flew the web and floated wide the mirror cracked from side to side the curse is come upon me cried the lady of shallot we open in black and white outside the gates of a castle on a hill under a full moon the score is very dramatic it's full moon, but with a lightning star. <laughs> right. And lightning, everything's black and white. Correct. Which I was very excited about. That you thought the whole, the whole movie, movie was would the be same? like this? Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh. Ooh, and, and when I, Especially the first shot inside the castle yeah. is gorgeous. It yeah. was like, oh, God, I cannot. This is going to be yeah. like Classic an old. mystery. Mm-hmm. Lightning crashes and we cut inside. It's the third act of a murder mystery. Several men and women are seated around a decadent drawing room under an enormous chandelier. According to the chiming of a clock, it is 10 p.m. We hear 10 chimes. I counted them. <laughs> this is Waste important. Time. This it is, is important. Wait for it. No. Nope. <laughs> With each chime, we get a suspicious face of a person. A detective in a Sherlock Holmes coat, which is what I call them, and a bowler cap is let <laughs> into the room by a butler, Barnsby. It's a He's trench a, coat. <laughs> is it a trench? It's not a trench coat. It's, it's not a trench coat? No, it's like one of those plaid skirty coats that look like a cape almost okay flannel flannel i feel like holmes is more known for his hat and not his coat (laughs) i I would call it a deerstalker coat because i don't know (laughs) what else to call it it's the coat that i would stalk deer in (laughs) what is it called it's called an iverness coat iverness coat yeah that's what i would have called it actually that sounds right (laughs) i would put that word with that kind of a coat it's an iverness coat just found it He's informed that everyone is waiting for him, and before he steps into the room, he invites Barnsby to join them. Barnsby looks less than excited to be invited to the scene. The inspector announces to the room that he hasn't found the missing jewels, but he has determined who killed Lord Finlay. Everyone looks away as if they have something to hide. The inspector claims that he has evidence to prove that someone in this room is responsible, and he goes through the standard motions, announcing each individual suspect's motives, but then dismissing them one at a time for one reason or another all the while unearthing lesser crimes and affairs along the way one of the suspects miss kate seems particularly distraught to learn that the killer might be seated among them she twirls a pearl necklace spastically in one hand and looks repeatedly into camera just as the inspector prepares to reveal the killer lord findley's murderer oh dear oh dear Suddenly the film snaps, and we are in the screening room in full color. The crowd watching the mystery with us is disappointed at the interruption. The distressed projectionist is powerless to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. One member of the audience laments that they'll never know who the killer was, but a second audience member seems to have it all figured out. It does seem rather obvious who the murderer was. Who, Miss Marple? 
Do tell us. Was it Sir Derek? Of course, Miss Marple here is being played by the wonderful Angela Lansbury, whose brother Edgar produced He Knows You're Alone for us earlier this year. The room takes turns guessing at the killer, and one at a time, Marple strikes down all their guesses using clues from earlier in the film. As she explains to everyone why their guesses are dumb, she's also sneaking out of the room because she doesn't have a reason to hang out since she's guessed the rest of the movie. I have a problem with this only in that she's giving a lot of credibility that this uh, writer for this mystery did all their research because she's right. pointing out like 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 inner ear problems. Yes. And, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, I oh. feel like that that's one of those things, though, where it only comes up if it has this specific meaning. Like right. That. So, like, unless this was an extremely well-crafted yeah. murder mystery film, uh, which I feel probably most weren't. As she's sneaking out of the room, by the way, she's moving past a poster for the film that they're watching, uh, which is apparently called Murder at Midnight, mm. even though it's 10. the climax takes place at 10 p.m., <laughs> although I don't know when the murder took place. so Or maybe there will be another murder in two hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Maybe this detective's about to get murdered because he figured everything out. And they needed two hours to come up with their alibis. <laughs> yes. But uh, so last night while I was watching the film, I posted to our Twitter account, hey, guess what I'm watching now? And it took a while for people to get it. I had to pump out a couple of other clues. But then after someone got the answer as the mirror cracked, someone else followed up with, oh, you're watching Murder at Midnight. Because I posted a screen grab <laughs> from this movie. And so I was like, oh, kudos to the person who guessed the film within the film. And I I took a while to figure out where the title even shows up. Other than mm-hmm. in the credits where certain characters are credited as being from Murder at Midnight. Yeah. Um, but uh, as she's leaving the room, she walks past a poster for Murder at Midnight, which features the actual names of the actors that played the parts in oh, that scene. Great. Even though it's not a real movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the director credited for the film within the film is Derek Cracknell, who is an assistant director that we mentioned earlier this year. Uh, he has a lot of awesome credits, and we went over a huge list of them in our review of uh, Oh Heavenly Dog, which he was also assistant director on. There's another connection to Oh Heavenly Dog, if you think about it, for this movie. But um, on top of that, I was able to find someone did like their own fan repainting on commission. Uh, this artist, Lois Cordelia, did a painting of the murder at midnight poster on the wall in this screening room huh. for someone to hang in their own screening room, presumably. So uh, I wanted to shout her out on the show, but is this I, movie beloved? Did I not know that? <laughs> Apparently it is. I think it is. She's clearly committed every clue to memory here and extrapolated every detail as minute as a character's childhood inner ear infection, all the way up to an adulthood inability to ride a bicycle without falling over. She announces to the room that Miss Kate was clearly the killer. She's twirling the pearls with her left hand, and based on the stab wound, the killer had to be left-handed. After she leaves, the room starts to discuss her theories. She could be wrong, you know. She's not. I've seen the picture. The next day, we see the residents of St. Mary Mead moving about their days. A title card lets us know that this is 1953. We cut to the entry hall of a home where a real-life Barnsby, a butler named Bates played by Charles Gray, is carrying a tray of appetizers. He overhears a loud American film director arguing on a phone. Listen to me, Marty. I don't care what those tea-guzzling, limey sons of bitches are demanding. Those tea-guzzling, limey sons of bitches are going to make this picture a hit, Marty. 
So stop playing around and give them what they want. The director is Jason Rudd, played by Rock Hudson. Bates serves his tray to Mrs. Bantry and Miss Zelinsky. Bantry seems to have offered up her home to the production. This is the Gossington Hall is the name of the building. And she lived here with her husband until he died. And now she's living in a lodge off to the side and offering this to the production. Presumably in exchange for being able to meet Marina Gregg, though this isn't happening here because Marina Gregg is heavily medicated and sleeping upstairs. Miss Zelinsky expresses her gratitude to Bantry for the hospitality. Mrs. Bantry here is being played by Margaret Courtney, who I immediately recognized from Oh Heavenly Dog. <laughs> do you know about the Octavia sisters? Of course you do. Everybody knows the Octavia sisters. <laughs> Miss Zelinsky is being portrayed by Geraldine Chaplin. Mrs. Bantry lets Zelinsky know what an honor it is to be hosting the lead actress, Mrs. Gregg, and her director husband. When Jason enters, Mrs. Bantry excuses herself. She's obviously disappointed not to have met Mrs. Gregg. I, I like how also offended she is by the, the, the fact that they're making Mary Queen of Scots. Yeah, she's, she's like, just like, oh. oh. <laughs> <laughs> not happy about this. When Jason asks where she is, Miss Zelinsky says, Out like a light. She taking those damn pills again. Well, if you shake her, she rattles. Before the scene ends, <laughs> that's good. Uh, before the scene ends, Jason gives Miss Zelinsky a quick kiss on the cheek. We cut outside to the St. Mary Mead annual fate in aid of the Coronation Fund, Saturday, July 6th. A long line of townspeople pay 2D each for raffle tickets and access to the fairgrounds where they're presumably celebrating the coronation of Elizabeth II, though the banner said July 6th, which is more than a month after Elizabeth's coronation on June 2nd of that year. Yeah, news travels slow. But then this banner is all sorts of messed up because it says July 6th, Saturday, and July 6th was a Monday in 1953. <sighs> why, why, I also, why did you look this up? Why not? I also don't know what 2D means as a price in England. It says pay 2D for the raffle tickets. Hmm. I don't know what the D stands for. I'm not, I don't Dollars. know British money. Yeah. Was it just for American audiences? They were like, oh, if it says anything other than a letter in the word dollars, people will be confused. A penny penny was represented by the D. So it's literally two pennies. Mm -hmm. Okay. There are all sorts of games, beverage stands, a marching band. It looks like the whole village is here. Mrs. Bantry is not excited about what this will do to the grass. She and Miss Giles bump into Miss Marple, and Giles asks if she thinks that Mrs. Gregg will come to the festivities. Marple doesn't even know who she's talking about or that there's even a film going on because she doesn't care about that stuff. Once she's been filled in, she assumes that, as an actress, that Greg would want to make an appearance and that she'd need to be accompanied by some suitable fanfare. Right on cue, Miss Zelinsky signals the band, who strike up into an instrumental rendition of There's No Business Like Show Business, and Miss Greg appears in the doorway of Gossington Hall. Miss Gregg gives a polite wave to the crowd and moves to join them in their party. Part of the deal here seems to be that they're selling dolls, I think. Well, I, I think I, I think like in a traditional fair, people are just selling goods. Yeah. And the proceeds for those goods are probably going to... Go to the to... coronation because these poor royals need more money mm -hmm. to pay for all the jewels in their crowns. I do like how uh, Miss Marple and Miss Bantry, uh, while everyone's so excited about uh going to the house going to the house and, and they just are just kind of like yeah. ho hum about it yeah marple like has no interest in joining and and 
Mrs. Bantry is like, yeah, it's my house. <laughs> it's not, I'm not excited about getting invited to my own house. One of the volunteers who is helping sell the dolls here is Miss Babcock, and she is invited to meet Miss Gregg personally by her assistant, Miss Zelinsky. We see Miss Gregg try her hand at a coconut shy game where you throw rocks at coconuts on sticks. She sucks at it. Miss <laughs> Zelinsky invites Bantry, Giles, and the Major to join them in Gossington Hall, the grand home that's hosting them, later for refreshments. Based on the brief conversations that Zelinsky and Greg have on the way back to the house, it seems that Greg knows about her relationship with Jason. Try a little restraint. Perhaps I could borrow some of yours. We seem to be sharing so much these days. We see a crowd of kids start a potato sack race when one is knocked over by a dog, and Miss Marple is quick to wrangle it to the sidelines. She seems to know the child that belongs to this dog and calls him over to hold the leash. Instead, the kid just whistles for his dog, and because the leash is wrapped around Miss Marple's leg, she is yanked to the ground. It looks like a fairly light fall, but Lansbury is made up to look much older than she is. She's 95 now, so she was 54 when they shot this scene. She even shares a birth year, 1925, with co-stars Rock Hudson and Tony Curtis. Hmm. For some reason, she has spent most of her career playing older women than she is. In 1962, she was only three years older than the actor playing her son, the titular Manchurian candidate. The doctor is quick to check on Miss Marple here and is surprised that she didn't break anything though she did sprain it, and he suggests no walking for a while. Kind of puts a damper on the movie when the detective character can't even be in the room with the people she's investigating. Back at the house, Jason is suggesting Miss Greg head upstairs to meet the mayor of the town. When she finds him, Greg compliments his divine necklace, and the mayor's wife looks at her like she's crazy, even though whatever this thing is that he's wearing definitely meets the definition of a necklace. Yeah. I mean, it's obviously some sort of Insignia. indication of his mayordom. Mayordom's a word, right? When Miss Babcock arrives to the party, she is immediately shepherded upstairs in search of Miss Gregg. Just as they are meeting, a photographer starts taking pictures and Miss Babcock switches into posing mode. She's like ready to Instagram. Yeah. Th this, this photographer, I thought for sure... Yeah, spoiler alert, not involved. Yeah. yeah. Because she's like, so let me suspicious. let me take a picture. I was like, yeah. okay. Slowly and meticulously click, click. Yeah, because the first time they, they show the photographer, they the, she turns around quickly to cover her face with the camera. Yeah. And I'm like, okay. I, I, was, I make notes during the mystery. Yeah, no, yeah, I, yeah, was, yeah. I was waiting for it to come back too. Yeah. yeah. Miss Babcock starts blathering on and on to Miss Greg about a time they met in the past. Apparently, Greg came to entertain GIs and Babcock was there. The vicar speaks with the director, who at first he mistakes for the producer. The director explains the difference. The um, producer supplies all the money. The director spends it. Then the producer yells that the director is spending too much money. The director doesn't pay any attention and goes right on spending. The director gets all the credit. The producer gets an ulcer. You see, it's all very simple. <laughs> and he just walks away from the guy. The producer arrives outside and enters the party along with Marina Gregg's co-star, Lola Brewster, Zelinsky can tell this is going to be a nightmare having them together. She tells Jason, and he flips out also. Babcock's story gets weird. She mentions that she snuck into this USO event where Marina was performing because she didn't have a ticket, but she wasn't feeling well. And then Lola enters and immediately starts posing for photographers on the staircase in front of a painting of a mother and child. And Babcock's story ends with Marina giving her an autograph and then she says, oh, and then you let me kiss you. 
But just then, Marina's head tilts off to the side and she sees Lola on the stairs in front of the painting. We get quick insert flashes of Marina's crazed stare, the painting, and Lola. And without the whole story, it looks like she's just furious to see Lola here. Mm -hmm. But eventually her stare is so frightening that everyone in the room notices and a photographer even captures it on film because she's like, oh, this is fascinating that she's just staring like this and everyone's staring at her. This highly suspicious photographer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she asks if Miss Babcock would like a drink and sends Jason to mix some up for them. Suddenly, Lola and Marina are face to face and start tossing barbs back and forth. Looking lovely as always. Of course, there are fewer lights on than usual. In fact, any fewer, and I'd need a seeing eye dog. Oh, I shouldn't bother to buy one, dear. In that wig, you could play Lassie. Same adorable sense of humor. And I'm so glad to see you not only kept your gorgeous figure, but you've added so much to it. What are you doing here so early, dear? I thought the plastic surgery seminar was in Switzerland. Actually, darling, I couldn't wait to begin our little movie. The photographer's coming close to get pictures of Lola and Marina together now. Chin up, darling. Both of them. Lola, dear, you know there are really only two things I dislike about you. Really? What are they? Your face. Jason hands his custom-made daiquiris to Marina and Miss Babcock. There's some really weird dialogue cobbles here on the stairs between Zelinsky and the producer, like words are being chopped in from other takes or yeah. something. It always bothers me. They do this a lot in trailers. You don't see it as much in features, but uh, it's very noticeable and it jumps out. Jason pulls producer Marty Fenn aside to yell at him for bringing Lola here. He's pissed off because of the mood that it's going to put his wife in when she's already a basket case. Zelinsky comes to collect Jason and let him know that something terrible has happened. The woman that Marina was speaking with upstairs has collapsed. They've laid her out on a chair, but she looks pretty dead. Yeah. Uh... Also, a suspicious thing is that when he's told, he immediately suspects that it's his wife. Oh, he says, "What did she do?" or something like that. Well, cause they they said something's happened, and he and he go and uh, he says, "Marina," like oh, he assumes it, something happened to her. Yeah. Okay. Which I was like, mm, he made the drink. Yeah. And I was like, mm-hmm. you know, like piecing things together. Yeah. Uh, we cut to Cherry who is Miss Marple's housekeeper, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's telling her all about what happened since Miss Marple wasn't there. Luckily, she seems to have photographic memory for details. She is apparently working for Miss Marple and also at Gossington Hall, where she volunteered because she wanted to see the actors up close. And she apologizes to Marple for this, but Miss Marple's like, no, it's a, it might actually be super helpful in solving this mystery if you're there to be my eyes and ears. She asks her to describe exactly what she saw in the order that it happened. And there's not much more to the story here at the moment. Just that Miss Babcock told Marina a boring story. She was handed a daiquiri by Jason. And then suddenly the doctor is showing up to check on Miss Marple. But for, for some reason, even though we have a, a shot and scene of Rock Hudson handing off these drinks, we use a different take. For oh, the memory of it? For the memory of it. Well, maybe that's just her slightly misremembering. Yeah. <laughs> memory it's very memories. clever that it's, yeah, it's just an illusion. It's not yeah, what it actually happened. It can't be happened. too photographic a memory. Marple starts prying from the doctor about the medical history of the recently deceased. As far as he knew, she was in perfect health. Marple shares that this situation seems to imply poison, 
and the doctor would rather leave that to the coroner's determination. Before he leaves, the doctor teases her about how excited she seems to hear about a murder in their small village. At a later press conference, the coroner confirms Marple's suspicion that the victim was in fact poisoned, and this is, in fact, a murder investigation. We see a suspicious character from the neck down moving around a building and suddenly casting a long shadow over the sleeping Miss Marple. She awakens to find her nephew, not only that, her favorite nephew, and they laugh and smile with each other. They're friends. It's good. He's not and, trying to kill her. And this ceases to be a Marple movie. Yep. And becomes... Now it's about him. The chief inspector, what's his name? Craddock. Craddock. Chief Inspector Craddock. Apparently he's the chief inspector from Scotland Yard, and he's here to investigate what has now been determined to be a murder. I think the last time we saw a chief inspector of Scotland Yard was probably Rough Cut with mm. David Niven was the chief Privatized? inspector. I can't remember if there was a chief inspector in that. Yeah. I mean, there were private investigators. And they were from Scotland Yard. They were from Scotland Yard because, yeah. because they had been fired from the whole continent of North America <laughs> to England. Because her nephew is privy to the details of the investigation, he starts to share the details with his aunt about the specific type of poison used in this attack because obviously she's been here the whole time. She's not the killer. He says it's called Talmudin. It appears the principal ingredient of it is um, an amylita blah, 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 blah. It appears the principal ingredient of it is... Um... urea. I know it well from my days at Bridgehampton Hospital during the war. Mixed with alcohol, it causes respiratory depression, a drop in blood pressure, feeble heartbeat. Quite deadly, in fact. Marple's making a lot of jokes here at the expense of this poor dead girl. She informs her nephew... She was a simple soul, friendly enough. Bit of a bore. But you don't kill someone for that. If you did, there'd be no one left in the village. <laughs> we cut across the village to Gossington Hall, where Jason is stealing all of Marina's medications while she sleeps and dumping them down the sink because he's tired of her sleeping all day. Back into Marple's place, her nephew is taking a statement from Cherry, the housekeeper. She's trying to recall the face that Marina made when the whole room went silent. She says she was just staring, frozen, over Miss Babcock's shoulder at a sort of religious painting on the wall. Suddenly, for no reason, Marple is reciting a section of Alfred Lord Tennyson's poem for which the novel and film got their names. It doesn't seem particularly relevant to what they're saying. <laughs> I don't know. It, it's badly shoehorned into this. Yeah. Scene. Out flew the web and floated wide. The mirror cracked from side to side. The curse has come upon me, cried the Lady of Shalott. Cherry's able to recall that later at the party, Marina and Miss Babcock collided hard enough to spill Miss Babcock's drink, and Marina insisted it was her fault, offered her drink to Miss Babcock to replace it, and then Miss Babcock greedily drank it up and died of poisoning. From these details, Marple seems to conclude that Marina Gregg was the target and not Miss Babcock, who no one knows or cares about. Her nephew, Chief Inspector Dermot Craddock, heads to Gossington Hall to speak with Jason Rudd, our director. Miss Zelensky comes down the stairs to inform the inspector that Jason is not available, so he will speak with her. While they chat, Inspector Nephew Dermot keeps getting distracted with his memories of Marina's old films. Now he's asking to speak with Marina, as being told that she's resting. Up in her room, Marina is actually screaming at Jason about producer Marty stuffing his girlfriend into the cast and as the virgin queen of all characters. Jason assures her that Lola is barely in the movie and no one will remember anyone but you anyway. And she, they're not even in any scenes together. Right. 
She worries aloud that in the gap between her last film and this one that she may have lost some of her skill, but Jason assures her this isn't the case. Marina continues ranting about Lola even being in the film and then sits down at her vanity in the corner. Bags, bags, go away. Come right back on Doris Day. Her husband, played by Rock Hudson, who has appeared with Doris Day in three films, smiles at the joke. Martin calls from the production office for Jason to head down there right away and explain to Lola that real queens don't wear feathers. Lola is dictating a lot of how she expects her character to look, despite the fact that the producer reminds her that Elizabeth was bald. She says that the character won't be, and that she will blow that cow off the screen, in reference to Greg's character. Lola is just making up scenes off the top of her head now, where she can appear side by side with Mary, Queen of Scots. She intends to look younger and thinner, but Marty reminds her, they have no scenes together, these two characters never met. She makes up a scene where she goes to see her at the Tower of London, and it's just before her beheading. And the rats are crawling all over her. She's in rags, looking like shit, and in walks me. We see the inspector interrogate Zelensky some more. He asks which of the two actresses is younger, and she says neither in the middle of a sneeze. He tells her that he takes a drug for his allergies called Calmadin and recommends it. She says they have a lot because they all have allergies in this new environment. I was leaning towards this Zelensky character as the killer until she freely admitted that they have lots of allergy medication that can also be used as poison, which mm -hmm. I think she wouldn't do if she were trying to use it to kill a person. Zelensky speaks a little bit to the difficulty of working with Marina. She says that she has a lot of tantrums and breakdowns, and the inspector is fascinated. He asks her to elaborate on these breakdowns, and apparently there are several trigger words that you cannot use in her presence. Well, you can't mention illness or insanity or anything to do with children. Really? That's most interesting. Why not? Inspector, I really can't go into it. <laughs> You've already gone into it? Yeah, that's pretty deep. far. I'm gonna, I, you, I have some clues to work with. I just rewatched Throw Mama from the Train, and it reminded me of a line where Danny DeVito says, well, I don't want to go into detail on the phone, but all I can tell you is that I killed her last night. <laughs> yeah. L. Simpson. No, that's too obvious. Lisa S. <laughs> the inspector asks how unsettled everyone's been since the murder, and Zelensky essentially tells them that the murder didn't even register on their radars. They're too busy making a movie to notice that there's a dead villager in the middle of their party. The inspector tries again to speak with Jason as he moves through the entry hall, but he tells Dermot, I don't have time. Dermot introduces himself as Inspector Craddock of Scotland Yard, and suddenly he has Jason's attention. At first, the murder completely slips his mind, and Jason assumes that he's here to break up the film, even though they're doing everything by the book, labor-wise. The inspector says that he's sure their film will turn out great. I happen to be here on a minor matter of murder. Which I think would have been a better title for the film. Mm. A minor matter of murder. Inspector Craddock asks for permission to speak with Marina, and Jason denies him again. Mr. Rod, it's very important that I talk to her. Inspector, my wife is about to start the most important role of her career. Every ounce of energy is being devoted toward preparing this role. She's going to win her third Academy Award, and I will not distract her with mundane matters like murder. Craddock understands what this means to Marina's career, and in fact believes that she should have won her third Oscar for a movie called Summer Rain, but finally points out to Jason that whoever killed Miss Babcock may have been targeting Marina. Apparently, this had never occurred to Jason. 
It doesn't change his answer on allowing the conversation with the inspector because he doesn't want his wife paranoid that everyone's trying to poison her all the time while she's trying to make a movie. The inspector follows Jason out of the building and on his way to the production office. He tries to bring the conversation around to Marina's trigger words, pointing to the children playing in the yard, apparently the children of the gardeners, and says, I'm surprised Marina's cool with all this. And Jason sees immediately where he's going and fills him in on the backstory. There was a time years ago when Marina wanted children. Badly. Her doctors told her she could never have any. So she adopted two. Then a few years later, she was still married to her first husband. She found out she was actually going to have one of her own. Unfortunately, the child was born mentally retarded. An imbecile. Marina had a complete breakdown. She hasn't worked since. The inspector tells Jason that he would still like to let Marina know about the threat, and Jason insists that he and Miss Zielinski will take turns protecting her from any murder attempts. The inspector asks if he trusts Zielinski, and he says that Ella is devoted to Marina. Here, the inspector reveals even more of his own observations. Ella is devoted to my wife. And to you too. And Jason realizes that the inspector has caught wind of their affair. Zielinski calls out to them and says, Marty wants you at the office right now, and if you're not there soon, he's going to call John Houston. John Houston, who we had earlier this year, directing Phobia mm -hmm. and appearing as a character in The Visitor. He also directed Miss Zielinski in a little film called Casino Royale, 1967. Uh, Geraldine Chaplin was in there. Although, actually, I don't think he ever directed her because he only directed the scenes at James Bond's mansion. And she's not in those scenes. Before Jason can get away from him, the inspector asks one last question. Is that the Martin N. Fenn who produced terror in Trinidad? The one and only. I've always wondered what the N stood for. No idea. How about Knockwurst? <laughs> Which doesn't start with an N, it starts with a K. Is that the joke? I think that is the joke. As a final note, he compliments Jason's directing on his previous film, though his compliments seem directed more at the cinematographer than the director. Dermot goes to visit his Aunt Marple again, and she's working in the garden, probably against her doctor's advice. He fills in his aunt on the contents of the conversations he had with the suspects. She seems convinced that Zelinsky and Rudd are the prime suspects. We cut to a screen test of Miss Brewster's costumes, and a lot of unnecessary information here. They're arguing about the blood for the movie and all yeah. the other stuff. None of it matters. Until Inspector Craddock arrives and Lola is immediately flirting with him. Why don't you ask me some more of those searching questions? I just love being examined, especially by someone as cute as you. Are you really an inspector from Scotland Yard? A real-life inspector in my dressing room? Well, just think of me as, uh, what do you call, a cop. Only if you brought your nightstick, sweetie. The character she's playing here reminds me a lot of Jane Krakowski on 30 Rock. Yeah. Lola seems to know all about Marina's breakdown and adds the detail that it was filled with drug and alcohol abuse. Now the inspector asks if there wasn't some conflict between them in the past and she plays dumb until he reminds her that she was seeing Jason Rudd at some point and now Marina is married to Rudd. Somewhere in his research, he has also uncovered that during an argument in their past, Lola fired a gun, narrowly missing Marina with a bullet. She asks if Marina told him that, and he says, no, I learned it from the Beverly Hills Police Department. She admits that, yes, she may have lost her temper in the past, and he asks if it's possible that may happen again, but with poison the next time, and she's offended at the implication. 
He walks off set and she shouts after him. Screw Scotland Yard! Miss Zelinsky is working her way around the outside of Gossington Hall when she's startled by a gardener trimming a hedge. She says she was just headed to the village and he points her in the opposite direction to find it. Miss Marple is watching through binoculars as Miss Zelinsky sneezes her way to a payphone in the middle of a park. While the inspector is standing in Marty's office, he receives a phone call from Miss Zelinsky in the phone booth. She says, I saw you put the poison in Marina's glass. And he pretends he's talking to someone asking about a part in the film and hangs up. He turns his attention back to the inspector. The inspector asks Marty how long he's known Marina and then if they were intimate with one another. Marty says, yeah, they were intimate. Everyone in Hollywood's intimate. Martin accepts another call from someone named Swifty, a likely reference to famous talent agent Swifty Lazar. He says that this guy once told him he had a great actress lined up, and when he tried to reach out to her, he found out she'd been dead for six months. That's how out of touch this agent is. The inspector asks who involved with the film might want Marina dead, and if he had any motive himself. Martin goes on a tangent about how he's dumping $3.5 million into this movie and he'd have to be a complete idiot to bump off his leading lady two days before production starts. He picks up his phone and starts to shout at someone named Terry and we get another one of these weird cobbled yeah. lines. Um, I'm not sure what's up with them. Harry, I want those pictures up here right now. Martin has had enough of this inspector and rushes him out of the office, but he has one more question. You want to know what it stands for? I'll tell you what it stands for. Nothing. But it sure looks great on that big silver screen, doesn't it? <laughs> he picks up the phone on his desk one last time and asks for someone to connect him to the coast. Get me the coast. What do you mean, what coast? <laughs> the inspector is finally granted access to speak with Marina herself. She apologizes for her inaccessibility, and he says it's not a problem. The inspector asks what she knows about Miss Babcock from their conversation. She needlessly shares Miss Babcock's entire story about having met her previously at the USO tour. She said it was the most exciting night of her life. And you know, it probably was. He asks her about the moment he's heard from other people where she froze up looking angry or frightened. And she remembers pausing, but claims that her mind just went blank when she couldn't think of a way to escape the conversation with this woman. Now the inspector asks if she can think of anyone who might have cause to kill her. Suddenly she gets very dramatic, and her voice actually pitches up into a younger-sounding voice. She's very upset by this line of questioning, and says, Why are you doing this to me? Why? I'm trying to pull my life together, and they're behind me, my husband, Ella. They won't let it happen. They'll stand up for me. Why are you doing this? Why? Oh God, it was me, wasn't it? It was me they were trying to poison, wasn't it? Who am I kidding? Somebody's trying to poison me, aren't they? Somebody's trying to kill me. Somebody's trying to kill me, aren't they? Aren't they? I know it. I can feel it. I can almost hear them coming. But by the time she's finishing this quote, the inspector is saying it along with her. Somebody's trying to kill me, aren't they? Somebody is trying to poison me, aren't they? Somebody's trying to kill me, aren't they? I know it. I can... I can feel it. I can almost hear them coming. Danger in the dark. <laughs> MGM 1932. <laughs> that scene when you thought your husband and your sister were trying to kill you and you broke down in front of the police. <laughs> Why, you sneak? 
sneaky little chief inspector. I bet you've seen every one of my movies. Oh, at least twice. <laughs> that one was a real dog. But you were most compelling in that scene, though. I don't know how much of this came from that film. Yeah. I feel like yeah. the word Ella probably didn't fit in there. Well, I'm glad, though, that that was what this was, because otherwise I'm like, why? Are, is this, like, so overacted yeah. here? <laughs> he says that her portrayal just now was a little overdramatic, and he would have settled for simple sincerity. It, it The whole scene kind of reminds me of The Rocketeer, where Timothy Dalton is trying to seduce uh, Jenny's character uh, by quoting lines from his movies, but she's seen all of them. Yeah. And he keeps so getting she's not falling for it. Well, and he keeps getting flustered every time she says what the movie yeah. the quotes from because he he clearly uses these lines to pick up women all yeah. the time. Jennifer Connelly, that's who it was. Sorry, it took me a moment. <laughs> <laughs> he tells her that he would have settled for simple sincerity, and she says that she doesn't think that he would have believed simple sincerity, and hands him some papers that she kept folded in a desk. Apparently, she's been getting death threats. One says you won't escape next time. And one says, prepare to die. And these look like they're photocopied. Yeah. It it doesn't look like the original letters. Yeah. She tells the inspector about how finding these notes reminded her of her childhood when she found a note in her desk that said, nobody likes you. She tells him the hardest thing about having it all is that someone wants to take it away from you. She pleads with the inspector for his help. We cut to the vicar in town. And he's talking to a woman with a stroller. This whole scene is completely yeah. unnecessary. But it sounds like he's talking about a baptism, like they're trying to schedule a baptism. Mm-hmm. And he says he's got another baptism, so she needs to be on time so the other one doesn't get late. There's no reason worth bringing it up except that the child being named, is his last name is Cracknell, which is, again, the assistant director of mm-hmm. the film. The vicar tells Marple that he's finally fixed the projector. We shall therefore, hopefully, no longer have to call upon you to resolve next Friday night's little extravaganza two girls from... I've forgotten where, but I do hope to see you anyway. Somewhere in America, I'm sure. The inspector knows that it's two girls from Idaho, and like the movie that opens the film, Murder at Midnight, this is not a real movie. I mean, there is a movie called Murder at Midnight, but what we saw was not that film. Right. We cut to the set of Mary Queen of Scots, where Marina is in full costume, rubbing her scene partner Jamie's face in her cleavage. She has to break character to tell the director to keep Lola offset during her scenes. Jason suggests that Lola spend some time learning her lines for the film as she asks the set if anyone has a script breakdown before pausing to apologize to Marina for having said the word breakdown in front of her. Miss Zelinsky brings Marina a tray of coffee fixins, and Marina starts screaming all of a sudden for Jason. She tells him that there's something wrong with this coffee, even though she didn't taste it or mm-hmm. anything. What? Jason! Jason! What is it? <laughs> the coffee! When Lola hears her screaming, her face is glowing with excitement because she thinks that Marina's just having another complete breakdown and that she's going to, like, win the role of the movie. Right. Jason tells her that the coffee seems fine and she storms off set. Miss Zelinsky watches from the sidelines. Is it arsenic that smells like almonds? Cyanide. 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 It like is almonds. cyanide. Yeah. I fear it might be gangrenous. The wound is beginning to smell a little like almonds, which is not good. Please. Which is also supposed to smell like cyanide and almonds. 
Is it? Yeah. Three delicious things. Oh, God. Cyanide, gangrene, <laughs> and almonds. We see Miss Zelinsky making another early morning phone call in the phone booth. Remember me? I saw you, murderer. When Miss Zelinsky gets back into the house, the butler tells her that Jason is looking for her, and when he sees her, he's immediately shouting at her. He's holding the lab results of the coffee that Marina almost drank on set, and sure enough, it was tainted with arsenic. He's finally considering Miss Zelinsky as a suspect, but eventually confesses that he still doesn't think she did it because he trusts her. And she says, don't worry, I'm sure they'll find him. Him? Yeah, whoever did it. Miss Zelinsky moves to the bathroom and inserts a tube in her nose mm-hmm. to blast allergy medication into her head. I guess. Yeah. Unless this is like a Coke delivery machine. Or like an old-fashioned neti pot. Yeah, maybe. Like it, the bulb is where all the snot accumulates. You, yeah. You're just like pumping it out of your nose. And then you squirt yeah. it at your worst enemy. It's like a <laughs> super soaker. <laughs> what? The oozinator. <laughs> yeah. But someone has swapped out the medicine in this tube for more arsenic. No, it's not arsenic. It's actually prussic acid. Yeah. Like, wh- okay. So this is <laughs> jumping around on poisons a lot. Yeah. yeah. I, okay. The whole concept was. We're using something that we had in the house. Exactly. And then all of a sudden we're using arsenic. I was like, okay, there guys a little more suspicious. But now there's a third poison? Yeah. Let's hop down to the arsenic shop and see if they've had any customers in the last week. (laughs) But Miss Zelinsky is immediately grabbing her face and then dying on the floor of this bathroom. The police arrive at Gossington Hall. Miss Zelinsky's body is carried down the stairs by two police officers, and the coroner promises the inspector a report in the morning. He moves to question Jason some more. And he tells Jason that whoever killed Zelinsky is the same one that tried to poison his wife. He then informs Jason that Miss Zelinsky was doing her own investigation by calling people from the phone booth in town and accusing them of the murder to just gauge their reactions. He assumes that eventually she found out the right person and that's why she's been killed today. The inspector asks Jason, why didn't you mention the death threats that your wife has been receiving on paper? And he says, oh, I totally forgot about it. We cut upstairs to Marina's room, where she's packing her bags. She has no interest in finishing the film, since it's basically confirmed now that someone is trying to kill her. She hugs Jason close and asks who would do this kind of thing, and he gets this suspicious look on his face, and he says, why don't you tell me about these paper death threats? Because I almost slipped up that the inspector's asking me about them, and I don't know anything about this. What's the point? Scare the hell out of you two? Eventually, he agrees to leave with her. I'll check into a hotel in the morning. Do you promise? I promise. We'll be together always. Till death do us part. Why'd you say that? We see Marple and her nephew around the kitchen table, and he's caught her up to the story. She tells him that prussic acid is an extremely painful way to die, and that Miss Zelinsky, the suspect that she was leaning towards, would absolutely not do that to herself on purpose. This takes her out of contention for Murderville. Later, over dinner, Marple is trying to decode that crazed frozen stare that everyone described. She tells her nephew the story of a man who was found hung to death over a puddle of water, and they couldn't figure out how he did it until they asked a third grader (laughs) who shared this riddle with all of his friends on the first day of school. And it turns out he was standing on a block of ice. Maybe it comes from this movie. I don't know. It's also weird to see Angela Lansbury smoking. Yes. Uh, That was her decision for the character, too. mm -hmm. 
Well, I always heard it as somebody stabbed with an ice cold, not hanging themselves off a block of ice. Mm. Oh, I'd I'd heard the standing on. It wasn't just a two foot block of ice, though. It was like the whole room was filled with ice, and he was standing on a mountain of ice and hung from a chandelier. Mm. She says the woman who found the body still shudders at the thought of an ice cube in her drink. Marple supposes that whatever triggered Marina was something like that, a trauma from her past that froze her. What would help most is determining exactly what Miss Babcock said before the frozen stare. Her nephew suggests asking Cherry, but Marple says, I already sent her away because there's too many people dying in this town, and I don't want her to die. She's really good at cleaning my carpet. Back at Gossington Hall, Jason lays out a tray of hot chocolate for Marina. After Jason leaves, Marina reaches for her hot chocolate, but collects the flower he brought in to smell first. The last light of Gossington Hall goes out and everyone in the village is asleep, but we float across town into the Marple House where she sits up suddenly in bed. Of course, the vicar. Marple rides in a very fancy car over to Gossington Hall for her first visit, I think. I don't think she's been here yet. When the butler Gates I tells mean, she her... she was in the front yard. Right, yeah. When the butler Gates tells her that Marina is not available, Marple tells him that she will wait and she sits in a chair. Gates reports her presence to Jason, who says he'll get rid of her. He finds her standing on the stairs, observing Bellini's mother and child, the painting on the wall, and she has determined that this is the direction that Marina was facing when she froze. The inspector arrives and is not surprised to find his aunt here. Marple prepares to talk them through the entire murder scene. She suggests that she wasn't looking at Lola or Miss Babcock, but rather the Madonna on this painting. The inspector reminds us what he knows of the story that Babcock told Marina. That she was sick, that she snuck out to see Marina. We see a reenactment of that night, and Babcock waits in the wings while Marina performs for the troops, and as she comes off stage, she signs something for Babcock, and then Babcock gives her a big kiss on the cheek, though this doesn't belong in Marple's or the inspector's telling of the story because neither of them knows about the kiss. Yeah. No one ever mentioned the kiss, and the only two people who know about it in the whole world are dead. Spoiler alert. Marple has made the connection that the sickness that Babcock was suffering from was rubella, commonly known as the German measles, when she went to that USO show, and that when she kissed Marina, she passed the disease along, which in turn caused the birth defects of her unborn child. The whole story element is cribbed directly from the life of actress Jean Tierney, who, not unlike Marina in the story, was contracted by the studios to perform at the Hollywood Canteen, a nightclub populated by film stars and accessible exclusively to servicemen, usually on their way overseas. In June of 43, pregnant with her first daughter, Tierney contracted the German measles during her only appearance at the canteen. As a result, her daughter was born deaf and blind and developmentally disabled. Some years later, she met a woman who claimed to have met her at the Hollywood canteen and then elaborated that she was sick with German measles but oh, snuck Jesus. out of her quarantine because she was such a huge fan. Ugh. That's a real story? That's a true story. That's awful. In her autobiography, Jean Tierney wrote, After that, I didn't care whether ever again I was anyone's favorite actress. Unless Agatha Christie or the filmmakers had gotten Tierney's express blessing, I feel like this is kind of in bad taste to repurpose sure. the exact tragedy for the book and film. Of course it is. Marple further concludes that when she learned who Babcock was and what she had done, that Marina poisoned her own drink and purposely spilled Babcock's drink to replace it with hers. Somehow, Marple has determined 
that Jason saw through this whole charade, and then he admits that he did. But she doesn't really explain how he knew about it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like when, you know, and and this is the difference between having maybe watched this movie in 1980 and watched this movie now. Like, the entire movie, I'm like, she poisoned her own drink. I don't know why, but she poisoned her own drink. And then we get to the end and we figure out why. But I was like, I was pretty sure from the the beginning. Okay, (laughs) really what happened is the drink was only in three people's hands, right? Yeah. It was in uh, Rock Hudson's hands. Yeah. It it was in uh, Jason, Jason Rudd's, the director's. The girl had it, Miss Babcock, who she was not suicidal, so she didn't do it. She's meeting her idol. She's yeah. so excited. She didn't kill herself. And it would be way too obvious for him to have poisoned the drink and handed it to his wife, yeah. and then the other person got killed. Mm-hmm. So she's really the only option from the beginning of the story. Yeah. Because and and Miss Zelinsky's being a creeper and weird the whole time. But from the first time we see her on a phone say, I saw you put the poison right, in the Right, then you're like, drink. it's then not you. Like, okay, well it's Why definitely not her. This? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. and it's also weird that the the agent or that the producer answers the phone and says, "Oh, sorry, that part's already been filled." It's like that was your reaction. Like, mm-hmm. what are you talking about? That didn't happen. Click. That's what yeah. you say. Yeah. yeah. And so, in her quest to figure out who the murderer is, she calls up Marina. I guess. I guess that was one of her suspects. Weirdly, or that's not related at all. And Marina just found out that she was calling people mm. and was like, "I need to kill this person." before she determines that no one here did it because otherwise it doesn't make sense that marina kills ella it well that was going to be my question does she yeah i don't yes. know i if think it... she does and i think she kills her just because she's with her husband see i i thought the other way i thought that rock hudson that was did my it question yeah. because miss marple realized that he realized yeah he was aware of the murders and Too so many he, layers yeah yeah i didn't know who killed her by the end even i didn't know who killed her I mean, and the, I still don't the, know the Zel, Zelig, Zeling, whatever her name Zelinsky. is. Zelinsky. Yeah. And I still don't know what the vicar had to do with any of this. Yeah, I don't know why she woke up and said, oh, of course, the vicar. But I mean, basically, the information that she got from the vicar was, oh, what she had was the German measles. Ah. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that's how she makes the connection. Oh, okay, so that's what caused the birth defect. But it also seems like Miss Marple would have already been aware of that since she knows everything about everyone in the yeah. town. But yeah. I mean, she wasn't, she's not from the town, so that makes her a little secret. I don't know why the vicar was taking care of her back when that happened, because the vicar is a local, right? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't the doctor know? Well, the doctor doesn't know Marina's case history. No, but he knows Babcock's. Yeah, the point is knowing Babcock's oh, that history makes sense. Yeah. and saying, oh, she had the German measles. E- e- even if she he didn't treat her so then, he, knows why she was he would know her medical history. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. But apparently Jason found out when the inspector asked him about the notes and he realized, okay, she's been creating things to fit the story that she's built mm-hmm. about these murders. And then I'm still not sure what his plan from there was. Uh, the inspector and Marple both asked to speak with Marina and confirm this story. And Jason starts to lead them to her room. But before he gets there, he admits, I killed her. She's dead. I killed her with poison. I rather suspected as much. So at first I thought he was telling them that their whole conclusion of what happened was incorrect and he's been killing people. Oh, I didn't think that. I think he just was preemptively killing her to save her from, from what, what she had done. The 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 resulting embarrassment and... But isn't she still going to be embarrassed? Because it he just admitted that she killed all these people. Well, she's dead. 
Well, so she personally won't be embarrassed. Yes. Yeah. But the story will still be out. Like her legacy yeah. is tainted. No, for yeah. sure. But it, she won't. She won't experience the tragedy. Okay, that makes sense. And and did she drink the poison? I don't know. Yeah, that's the other confusing part. I because, really wanted to talk about that. So they walk into the room and. Because he says he realized that she was murdering all these people and that she was going to lose control of it eventually. More likely, he was probably worried she would eventually kill him mm-hmm. because he would know too much. He knows. But uh, so he poisoned her hot chocolate and left it on that tray on the bed. But when they come into the room, it's just sitting there on the bed. It looks untouched right. to me. Right. Yeah. Yes. I, think I agree. It, I think and the bed untouched. is made and the suitcase is gone. And, and so- Jason starts dancing around the room excitedly, assuming that maybe she's not dead after all. Right. Which... Don't you want her to be dead? Wasn't the whole point was that you were killing her to spare her the embarrassment and now she's caught and she's well, going to be except, embarrassed. Well, except she had a suitcase on the bed. I think she was planning. She was. They were going to leave for a hotel They were going to leave. So maybe she, so I think my first instinct was that she took off and that she, she's never going to be seen from again. Right, right. And, and so that was what I thought happened. He wanted. And that's what I thought he was relieved when he's like, okay, she's accepted this, but she has gone off and to live her life on her own in secret but as he's looking around for her marple finds her body in another room i'm assuming it's her body yeah i mean it it is her body but what i was expecting as as miss marple goes in there like they hang on this shot of her in the doorway not showing the body but indicating that obviously she's seeing one and so I'm like, okay, cool. We're going to turn the corner and see that she's like slit her wrists or something. Yeah, I thought she'd be so it's like, slit her wrists look, or hanging. Look, I or hanging. Exactly. It's just like, look, it's clearly not poison. And it lets Jason off I've taken my own life. He's not in trouble, but I've done what he wanted me to do right. so that I'm not embarrassed by this. Well, yeah, he, like, that's why I think he's so excited. He's like, oh, if she's alive, I'm only guilty of attempted murder. Right, oh, right, wait, exactly. Yeah, that's what he's excited that's about. That's totally, totally it. I wanted her to be hung from the ceiling with a big puddle of water underneath her <laughs> and they'd be like oh it looks like she was standing on oh this is piss oof don't touch this guys this is piss uh i kind of wanted lola's body to be in there like this is like a final like i just got hanging rid of- from with a puddle of water under her <laughs> well just, just like just like oh yeah marina's gone apparently she killed lola at some point just take to a, add take them down and, and they go out. out to her balcony and there's just a trail of dead villagers leading <laughs> off to the horizon i'm going down i'm taking it all with me <laughs> all these daiquiri and hot chocolate glasses just like all- <laughs> she mixed a lot of this shit before she left <laughs> making a milk run <laughs> they call her the milkmaid yeah, but she's dead for, from something. From something. And it's not clear if Rock Hudson is now going to go down for this shit. Like, and maybe she took a sip and then went to go lay down all pretty because she knew it was poisoned. And then the movie ends on the most cryptic line. She's given the performance of her life. What was that? What? Perf- is she not Does that dead? Mean she's not dead? She's <laughs> just playing dead? That no, is good. I mean, I think the best performance is her having lied this whole time about murdering them i thought that's what i took from it but at the same time i was like is she dead i don't know (laughs) but if she didn't drink the poison and she is dead then did she poison herself yeah and if so via what method did she use prussic acid because that would be silly yeah and there's not like a a nose tube here but like you'd you like if if she wants to look fancy if you had specifically chosen not to drink that you should make it obvious that you died from something that wasn't your husband trying to kill you right and if you did drink it well 
I guess maybe she just had enough presence of mind to try to make herself look nice before she died. Yeah. I, th- I think that would be her focus for sure with her last moments is like, but then what's the point of having it in the other room and have it be a surprise for us? Like, I don't understand if, if she did drink it, what's the point? Maybe she couldn't look as nice on the bed because it's too high up. If I'm on this couch, that's lower down. People are looking down on me. It's better angle on my face. I think she considers all of these things. It wasn't a better angle. Her neck was all, (laughs) you don't know what she would have looked like on the bed though. That's true. And what if she spilled the hot chocolate? Oh, I'm just now, I'm just now thinking hot chocolate. It was hot chocolate with poison. Yeah, poison. I, I was making the joke of oh. that wasn't hot chocolate oh, hot on poison. the bed after it she was, died. It, oh. She lost bowel control. Uh, oh, <laughs> no. Oh, no. Uh, I'm wondering. It was hot chocolate because she refuses to use ice cubes. <laughs> <laughs> they terrify her. Uh, I'm wondering if they switched to arsenic because of uh, Rock Hudson dumping all the pills. So she didn't have access to the maybe to the uh, but she got arsenic real fast so yeah. <laughs> when he threw away all the pills is that why Zelensky is sneezing for the whole rest of the movie is because yeah. it's like now we don't have the allergy oh, medicine yeah 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 I didn't get that that makes more sense I was waiting for the sneezes to come back into play like I mean I guess it came into play because they were talking about the allergies and stuff like that yeah. but I was like waiting for that to be the clue that I was wanted like, oh because she's sneezing we know she did xyz mm-hmm. what if after she blasted her nose with the prussic acid she's just sneezed blood all over the Ugh. mirror oh. the and then the mirror cracked side to side <clears throat> no up and down just to make the title that she, much more worthless she, she sneezes so hard that she slams her head into the mirror <laughs> and cracked and that, it side and to side that's what cracked it uh. <laughs> we should write this movie <laughs> <laughs> write no. it or rewrite it <laughs> no one wrote it in the first place <laughs> <laughs> this film was directed by guy hamilton he directed this back-to-back with another Agatha Christie adaptation, Evil Under the Sun, which was released in 82. He is probably best known for his directing some of the best James Bond movies, including Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun. He also directed Funeral in Berlin, Force 10 for Navarone, and Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Writer Jonathan Hales also wrote several episodes of Young Indiana Jones Chronicles. He wrote the story for The Scorpion King and the screenplay for Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. The other writer, Barry Sandler, is uncredited for screenwriting on Hamilton's second consecutive Christie adaptation, Evil Under the Sun, and then a handful of things I didn't recognize. Novelist Agatha Christie has literally hundreds of film and television credits for adaptations of her work, including multiple adaptations each of And Then There Were None, Ten Little Indians, The Alphabet Murders, Spider's Web, Murder on the Orient Express, Death on the Nile, both of which have now been remade by Kenneth Branagh. Mm -hmm. Very excited for Nile to come out. And both Marple and Poirot have also had television series dedicated to their characters. Uh, I I thought it was interesting that IMDb has her listed as uncredited for novel it definitely says her name at the beginning yeah of the it film. says agatha christie's mirror cracked i was like i think that's a i think that counts as a credit it's like samuel z arkoff at the beginning of uh dress to kill it says uncredited on imdb but his name is the first thing on screen and the beginning of dress to kill angela lansbury played miss marple her first feature film appearance was as nancy in the film gaslight a movie which has now become a verb she is was. It, is it actually about? Yes, it's a reference people? to that film. Oh, okay. Yeah, cool. that I the movie that. is a, a woman whose husband is trying to convince her that what she's experiencing isn't happening and that she's just going crazy and 
And that's where the, the verb to gaslight someone comes from. She was Sybil Vane in Portrait of Dorian Gray. She was Queen Anne in The Three Musketeers. She's Miss Eleanor Shaw Islin in The Manchurian Candidate. Miss Price in Bedknobs and Broomsticks. She had just appeared in the previous Braborn Goodwin Christie adaptation of Death on the Nile as Miss Salome Otterborn. She's the voice of Mommy Fortuna in The Last Unicorn. Granny in In the Company of Wolves. And she's also the voice of Mrs. Potts mm-hmm. in Beauty and the Beast. Jessica Fletcher in 264 episodes of Murder, she wrote. And for no reason, she didn't get the James Earl Jones treatment for the live-action Beauty and the Beast. Geraldine Chaplin was Ella Zielinski. Obviously, she is the daughter of Charles and Una Chaplin. She portrayed her own grandmother, Hannah Chaplin, in the 1992 biopic Chaplin. She has appeared in a great deal of Spanish and French films. She appears as a Keystone cop in the 67 Casino Royale, directed in part by John Huston, whose name she mentions in the film. She's Katerina Belova in Talk to Her. She's a fortune teller in UV Bowl's Blood Rain adaptation. And she just appeared as Iris in the most recent Jurassic Park film, whatever that was called. Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> Fallen Kingdom. There you go. You worked on the trailers. Jurassic something fallen place or jurassic park jurassic park 5 resident evil jurassic park where there's a (laughs) it all takes place in a mansion with a massive lab yeah i haven't seen that one it's weird it's so it's a very strange choice tony curtis plays martin n fenn he played antoninus in spartacus he was joe and josephine in some like it hot we saw him earlier this year as blackie in little miss marker and in a previous version of the same story 40 pounds of trouble he played the protagonist that walter Matthau took over for little miss marker edward fox plays inspector craddock he was general dyer in gandhi he's lieutenant general horrocks in a bridge too far he's the jackal in day of the jackal and he plays m in James Bond fan film, Never Say Never Again. (laughs) He was also just recently Agent 9 in Johnny English Strikes Again. Rock Hudson was Jason Rudd. He's Jordan Bick Benedict Jr. in Giant, 1956, where he plays the husband of Elizabeth Taylor's character. This was their reuniting as husband and wife. He appeared in the first Iron Man film in 1951. He plays Lieutenant Frederick Henry in A Farewell to Arms. He's in Pillow Talk, come September. the first Iron Man film. (laughs) I was waiting for a reaction. I was so confused. You go by these things so fast. I can't even think straight. He's in a 1951 movie called Iron Man. Okay, it has nothing to do with Iron Man. It's the same story. No, it's not. It's not related at all. He's in Pillow Talk, come September, Love Come Back. He also appears in a movie called Avalanche, which got the MST3K treatment on the Netflix reboot, and that's worth a watch. Kim Novak played Lola Brewster. She's Madeline Elster in Hitchcock's Vertigo. She's Madge Owens in Picnic. One of her last films was The Children in 1980. Sorry, The Children in 1990. I was going to say, we watched movie. that one. <laughs> I don't recall I don't Kim Novak in that in movie. Yeah. No, she is, she's just in one scene. You blink and you'll miss it. No, she's not in the 1980 film The Children. Uh, but the 1990 film The Children also stars Geraldine Chaplin. Elizabeth Taylor played Marina Rudd. She was Martha in Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, Maggie in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, and Cleopatra in Cleopatra. This would be her last starring role, though she does have a cameo as 
Pearl Slaghoople in the Flintstones movie. She also provided the voice of Maggie Simpson on The Simpsons. Margaret Courtney what? played Miss... <laughs> it's just one episode. She does a one-off. She does the voice really? of Maggie. Yeah. Is it's, it the only voice? Is it the only time Maggie's voice? That can't be the only time Maggie is voice. It's the only time I can think of. I mean... Yeah. Maybe what about the when no because even when they do like the future, the future episode, one she never gets she to never say talks right yeah but in the in this episode it's the one it, it's called Lisa's first words and it's the one where they're trying to like oh, t- they're talking and about then at when the Lisa's very first end words of the episode she, she says, says something yeah. yeah I forget what she says Daddy. but it's uh it's Elizabeth Taylor doing the voice she also played herself on The Simpsons um, Margaret Courtney played Mrs Bantry we just had her in Oh Heavenly Dog from the same AD. Uh, Derek Cracknell. I wonder if he recommended her for this. Charles Gray played Bates the butler. He's another Bond regular, having played Henderson in You Only Live Twice and later Blofeld for director Hamilton in Diamonds Are Forever. He's also the criminologist in Rocky Horror Picture Show and Judge Oliver Wright in its sequel, Shock Treatment. Carolyn Pickles was Miss Giles. We just had her as Marion the Drunkard in Tess, where we mentioned her credits in Deathly Hollows, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and The Spy Who Dumped Me. Thick Wilson played the mayor. That is a good name for that guy. <laughs> he was General Warden's aide in The Dirty Dozen. He's Mr. Brady in Tommy Boy and Gourmand in The Dark Crystal. Peter Woodthorpe played the scoutmaster. We, we barely get a glimpse of this guy. He's yeah. like Russian Boy Scouts through a bunch of uh, exercises at mm. the at yeah. the party he's the voice of Gollum in the Bakshi Lord of the Rings mm. Nigel Stock played Inspector Gates in the fake movie at the beginning Murder at Midnight he's Cavendish the Surveyor in The Great Escape he's William Marshall in The Lion in Winter and he's Rupert T. Waxflatter in Young Sherlock Holmes Pierce Brosnan <laughs> was the actor playing Jamie that's the one whose face was getting rubbed in Elizabeth Taylor's boobs on set was that really that was a very young pierce brosnan wow i was just so distracted by the fact that he was so young and elizabeth taylor was wow less as old young. as she was <laughs> significantly less young. and i was not thinking about the guy the appearance of pierce brosnan means that guy hamilton has directed three canon james bonds sir sean connery in goldfinger sir roger moore in live and let die and the man with the golden gun and he also directed the unofficial James Bond, David Niven, in The Best of Enemies. Brosnan was James Bond from Goldeneye to Die Another Day. He also appears in Mrs. Doubtfire, Mamma Mia, Mars Attacks, and The World's End. I'm sure this cast was loaded with many magnificent British actors who I neglected, but I am woefully unqualified (laughs) to discuss European cinema at length. My brain can barely hold what I know of American movies. <laughs> so I apologize for the people I left out here. I'm sure they're awesome. What about our editor? <laughs> Who's our editor? His name is Richard Martin. Um, and he is this editor from Bedazzled. The, Which, obviously the 67 the one. The Dudley Moore one, yeah. I think. Um, he's also edited a movie called Sleuth, which I have not seen. Have you guys okay. seen this movie? Uh, no. no, but we just mentioned it in our previous episode because it has Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier, Olivier and in it. Michael I was going to say, it's from our previous episode, um, and Michael Caine, and it looks good. I I'm sure watch it is. It. Um, Who directed it? Joseph Mankiewicz. Oh, then yeah, that yeah. sounds great. Uh, but anyways, uh, Richard Martin also edited a Saturn Three from oh, earlier did he? this year. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah, so worth a mention. And some Hellraiser movies, the first and second one. Nice. 
Or were there more than two of those? I feel oh, there, like there's there like seven yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. A I don't think I've franchise. seen any of them. Uh, the the first one is as a definite should see just for the horror starting the franchise. Yeah, and the second one is actually pretty okay too. Yeah. Beyond that, I I cannot speak for them. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, I think that was all the credits. Uh, this is a thumbs up for me just because it can't not be a thumbs up with this cast. Um, and obviously Angela Lansbury is just phenomenal and everything. Um, yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I give it a thumbs up. <laughs> Richard. <did laughs> <not>. Richard. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. This film didn't do it for me. Um, it is very slow to get started. Yeah. And, and it's, I, I think what I'm upset about is that I wanted a murder. She wrote movie <laughs> and Miss Marple is barely Miss Marple does this movie from an armchair yeah like she's, she's yeah she's really dissociated from the plot yeah she she just people just keep coming back to her with information and but, then going she has back to trust out. their observations but i feel too. like that's supposed to emphasize her abilities and her prowess at, like, that even like second to... and third hand she yeah, can solve this exactly. before anybody else exactly maybe maybe if you guys hit us up on twitter we'll change this to a murder she wrote podcast i'm not against that <laughs> You let us there know. There will if that's be what less episodes, have. so maybe we should do that because we're we're doing about a murder she yeah. wrote. We'll finish the whole 264 yeah, episode series in a year in and a half. A year and a half. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I liked it a lot. I like the cast. I think that the writing is a little sloppy in places, um, but really, a lot of the time, I f- I will forgive bad writing for having a really cool cast, and I liked everybody in this. Yeah. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I think it's a little old fashioned, but it's from 1980. Like it's yeah, not. And it takes place in 53 and yeah. it's all these old actors. And so I feel like I can't really compare it to modern mystery films. Uh, and so I think it's great for what it is. I'm also still a little grossed out about the whole Gene Tierney thing that they yeah. ripped off such like a personal tragedy and just made it 100% over again. Like they didn't even change the disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, and, and they're just a couple of, like, loose, thready kind of questions, which I'm sure are answered if, in, the book. in the book. But, again, just because we were all puzzled about some of the the, la- the latter murders of yeah. exactly how they were carried out. Because she never explains <laughs> she never explains how they're carried out. Right. Those murders aren't solved. Yeah. The only murder that's solved is the murder of Babcock. Yeah. And by was, the end of the movie, there's four dead people. Yeah, I was like, I need to know how these other murders happen too. Yeah, you can't, you can't leave me wondering those murders. That that's why I wanted Lola's body to be in there, because I want this question of wait, she killed her too. When did when did this happen? Yeah. I, I wanted the the the. So t- your your problem is that they either didn't answer enough questions or they didn't ask enough new questions. Yeah, I, like I, you wanted just more questions. Yeah, time. exactly, because. Like the Thomas Crown Affair, the movie ends and there's another painting stolen. It's like, how did he steal that one? I don't know. doesn't matter. This movie's great. <laughs> Speaking of which, Pierce Brosnan is also in that yeah. movie. Um, but overall, I, ha- I have to just say I, I wouldn't wouldn't watch this again. And I wouldn't say, hey, you should watch this again. I don't think it has a lot of rewatchability. 
I, I mean, I think it was fine the first go around, but I, I agree that I don't know that I'd watch it again, but I still think it's all right. I wouldn't I wouldn't discourage somebody from watching it. I would watch it again if I was in a murder mystery mood, which I sometimes am. I've watched Knives Out like four or five times in the last year because I just like putting that movie on. And again, that's a situation where there's problems with the script, but mm-hmm. I love every actor so much yeah. that I just it's worth it to just look at them and absorb their faces. But- but see, like for me, as far as the recent murder mysteries, as much as I like the people in Knives Out, I feel like the murder on the Order Express is a more interesting traditional murder mystery. I love Kenneth Branagh, and I, I liked uh, Murder on the Orient Express. I'm very excited for Death on the Nile, but I, I prefer Knives Out. I think Knives Out is more entertaining. Yes. But I feel like Murder on the Orient Express is a much more traditional murder mystery. Yeah, traditional because because yes, out is I mean, anything but traditional, and he's trying to be extremely to the point, like following the books, mm-hmm. which is like his whole thing. I really want the same thing with his Shakespearean adaptations. I, I really wanted this movie to be black and white. I really wanted this movie. <laughs> I get why it isn't just based on how they started it that they yeah. wanted to have a juxtaposition from yeah. the original film, but that first shot of them in the in the drawing room yeah. is so beautiful it's just this yeah. gorgeous wide shot with all these characters and it's so dense with detail and the contrast is beautiful i just loved it and then i don't know anytime you have a movie that starts in black and white and then it's suddenly in color you're like noticing all these problems like oh mm. that's not as vibrant as it could have been but if this whole movie were in black and white it might have looked nicer somehow it's weird but i feel that way about I mean, even uh, Wizard of Oz, I think, did the right thing, which was to blow up the color and make it, like, insanely different. Yeah, oversaturated. But when when you go from being in, like, this pristine black and white to just a real-life situation, it, for some reason, looks, like, dirtier and less interesting. Yeah. Still, I liked it a lot. Um, Do we know where this is going on your list, Jess? Um, Yeah, I have it... um maybe a third of the way down or so here i have it at 66 it's below the man with bogart's face and above private benjamin okay richard uh, i have it at 85 uh putting it below smoking in the bandit 2 but above stir crazy okay and i actually have it in 38th uh mm. it's just under hopscotch and just above blues brothers all right i think that's everything for this one if you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show, and if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing New Year's Evil which IMDb describes like so. During a New Year's Eve celebration, a Los Angeles disc jockey receives a phone call saying that when New Year strikes in each time zone, someone will be murdered and she will be the last one. Because Hawaii doesn't matter. Right? Is he saying he's going to kill someone in each time zone? How many time zones are there? Well, there's a time zone. The time zone in Hawaii is different than the time zone here. There's yeah. also a couple Alaskan time zones yeah. to the left of us. So if she's the last one and she's in Los Angeles, then she's going to die at like 5 a.m., right? 
Is he going to kill someone question. in each time zone? Apparently, there's 24 time zones. <laughs> well, I think there's he, more than that. This is what it's because there's some that are like zones. alternate. So, is he going to kill someone in each time zone? It says. Granted, we've all seen this movie and know exactly how it goes. No, that's not true. When New Year strikes in each time zone, mm-hmm. someone will be murdered. Someone. So that sounds like a person will die once an hour every 24 hours. Okay. But but the last person to die should be dying uh, when it's the New Year at the International Dateline, mm-hmm. which is in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, not in Los Angeles. But I'm assuming... The people who are dying are all in Los Angeles. It's not one person. Yes, in no. Each I think time zone. I think the the kills are happening locally, but they're based on each time zone. But let's if it's, have a really fast jet, and they're just going around the world every hour. Are we going to have are twenty four people going to die in this? Yeah, movie? That, that's that's crazy. It should have just well. So according to this, there are more than twenty four time zones in the yeah. world because some countries are half hour have half hour time yes. zones. Yes. And except for and China, North, North Korea is off by like seven minutes from South Korea, just to fuck with them. <laughs> well, and China is one time zone. All of oh, China, that makes yeah. Sense. yeah. Oh God. We leave you now <laughs> with the trailer for New Year's Evil. One night, they were celebrating New Year's Eve. He was out, ending their life. I'm going to commit murder at midnight. Call me evil. Every New Year's Eve, the caller came out. I won't make any comments. 